Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. So I leave for a week and the Supreme Court goes crazy, apparently. Yeah, so we are going to do a deep dive into the Alabama Supreme Court ruling. And then we are going to be talking with two folks from the progressive data firm Catalyst about their analysis using data and not relying on punditry about what actually happened in the 2022 midterms and what made them so different from other similar elections. We have a fantastic episode. Let's get rolling. So Beard, you were on vacation last week. I know that you are just getting back in the swing of things. So I'm going to give you a break this week and I'm going to get you up to speed on the most important news story of the last week. And it was not Donald Trump's indictment. Uh, As fun as that was, I would much rather hear what you're going to tell me about instead. So we have to talk about the astonishing Supreme Court ruling on the Alabama redistricting case. We record the down ballot on Wednesdays. This ruling came out Thursday morning. We were gnashing our teeth about just missing the window to be able to discuss it last week. But we've since had a full week to think about it, write about it, analyze it, figure out what the implications are. So I want to dive right in. And the first thing I want to address is kind of a meta point. There were some arguments in legal circles that the ruling was not actually good news because the state of the Voting Rights Act is still very precarious and the state of American democracy in general is still very precarious. But I really reject that point of view because I think you can have good news even in a bad environment. And that's exactly what this was. And lots of people, for very good reasons, readily interpret news that could have been much worse as good news. This is a very common framework for lots of people from Jews to Mets fans, and I qualify as both. So that's certainly how I see the world. And Slate's Dahlia Lithwick wrote an excellent piece. I definitely recommend that you Google it. She said, quote, perhaps we've reached the part of the show where simply not being punched in the face over and over at the high court counts as a good day. Well, I think so. I think it was a good day. We didn't get punched in the face by the far-right majority on the Supreme Court. I am extremely pleased with the result. And to be fair, a lot of legal analysts also are, and they are viewing this as good news. Yeah, anytime you have to rely on Brett Kavanaugh for your wins, your wins are going to be few and far between. But you got to take them. I think the idea of saying this is bad news or not good enough news to celebrate is just sort of dooming yourself to be, you know, down about everything that the Supreme Court does for like the next 25 years, probably. So take take the win. Take the win. And I think that lost in the elation last week, somewhat lost at least, is just how awful a maximalist far right ruling would have been. And that's exactly what the state of Alabama, the Republicans who run the state, had wanted. They wanted the Supreme Court to completely shred Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which was the part of the Voting Rights Act that was central to this case and many, many others over the decades. And had the Supreme Court done that, done what Alabama had asked, 
forget about creating new majority minority districts, which is what the plaintiffs in the Alabama case were asking for. It would have allowed Republicans in all likelihood to eliminate existing majority minority districts. Right now, for instance, Alabama has seven seats in Congress. Republicans drew a 6-1 map, meaning six seats that are almost certainly going to elect Republicans and one safely blue Democratic seat with a black majority. If the Supreme Court had done what Alabama had asked, boom, there goes that seventh district, which is currently represented by Terry Sewell, a black Democrat, and the GOP could have gone ahead and created a 7-0 gerrymander in their favor. And it's not just Alabama. Multiply that by every other state under Republican control, and then multiply that not just by the congressional maps, but by all of the state legislative maps, which are also governed by the VRA. So you are talking about potentially hundreds of districts nationwide that have been drawn to ensure that, generally speaking, Black and or Latino voters are able to elect their candidates of choice and not have their votes diluted by white Republican majorities, those would have been in jeopardy. Those would all have been at risk of going away. And that is at the core of one of the possible reasons why John Roberts wrote the opinion that he did and maybe why he was able to get Brett Kavanaugh along for the ride with him. Rick Hassan, who is a well-known election law expert, he wrote in an op-ed in the New York Times that it's possible that Roberts shied away from completely eviscerating Section 2 of the VRA because he could, quote, foresee the additional social upheaval and opprobrium that would have been generated against the Supreme Court had it ended significant minority representation in Congress and state houses. And that's exactly what would have happened had they ruled Alabama's way. It would have both shredded minority representation nationwide, and boy, people would have been even more furious at the Supreme Court than they already are today. I do think there's a degree to which it's the situation where you keep shaving and shaving and shaving away parts of the Voting Rights Act, and eventually you get to the core of it, and you can't shave it away anymore. I, I guess my assumption before the ruling came down is they would figure out a way to just like shave it off again, just be like, oh, for whatever reason, Alabama doesn't have to create this other district, doesn't have to make sense, they just have to shave it away a little bit more. And I think ultimately what you found is that there wasn't anything left and you either had to chuck the whole thing or let something stand. And I think Roberts and Kavanaugh clearly were not in a place where they wanted to chuck the entirety of the Voting Rights Act, whether that was political pressure or whatever else, you know, thank goodness they decided not to. Yeah. And the Alabama case in particular was very, very carefully reasoned and written by this three-judge panel, which, by the way, included two Trump appointees at the district court level. And so it was going to be very difficult for even the Supreme Court to find a way in which the district court got it wrong. So yeah, I think you make a really good point. It's kind of an all or nothing situation now. That said, I wouldn't put it past these guys to find a way to nuke this in the future. But for the moment, at least, like you said before, a win is a win. So now we have to look at what happens next. And there's something very interesting about litigation under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. In most redistricting cases, you can't really know what a final map is going to look like, assuming a court strikes down a map that's already in place. But in VRA litigation like this, one thing that plaintiffs have to do at the outset is demonstrate that minority voters can be drawn 
into a compact enough district such that they constitute a majority of that district. And what that means in practice is that plaintiffs will go ahead and create hypothetical maps of their own to show that this can actually be done and submit them as evidence to the court. And because they're submitting them in open court, we get to see them. And even cooler, if you're really hardcore into this kind of redistricting nerdery, you can play around with them. We will include some links in the show notes to illustrations that we've created of some of these hypothetical maps and also links to versions on Dave's redistricting app, which let you see all of the demographics, all of the political data. It's really fascinating stuff if you're into this sort of thing. To be clear, Dave is neither David Neer nor David Beard, but yet another Dave that's in election work. Dave Bradley, by the way, whom election Twitter and all redistricting nerds out there owe an extraordinary debt of gratitude to that he created this amazing free tool at Dave's redistricting app that you can play with absolutely any map that you can dream of with incredibly sophisticated tools that used to be very, very expensive. It's really a great, great tool to have for anybody who's interested in elections. So talking about Alabama's current map, the one that the district court and then the Supreme Court said is problematic and very likely violated the VRA. What Republicans did there is something that they've done in a lot of other states. They took two areas with large black populations, that's the city of Birmingham and the city of Montgomery, and they merged them together in one congressional district. That's the seventh district that I was talking about earlier, represented by Terry Sewell. But black voters in Alabama are also heavily concentrated in a rural area known as the Black Belt. And so what Republicans did is they used a strip of the Black Belt to link up Birmingham and Montgomery and then carved up the rest of the Black Belt among other majority white districts. And doing so, that dilutes the strength of black voters. And what the plaintiffs in Alabama showed is you can very easily draw two districts in Alabama with black majorities that would therefore be likely to elect the candidate of choice of black voters. And that's almost always going to be a black Democrat. And so we have versions of these maps where you can see, you know, there's there's a bunch of different ways to slice the pie. You can tweak this or tweak that. But Instead of having Birmingham and Montgomery together in one district, now they would each anchor their own districts. And the ultimate upshot of that is that instead of having this 6-1 Republican delegation, once Alabama gets a new map, it's very probably going to be a 5-2 map with two Democrats who are both almost certainly going to be black Democrats. Yeah. And ultimately, this is not that difficult. Republicans and a lot of their filings made it be like, oh, you have to go way out of your way to make these two black districts. You're, you're just gerrymandering to make yourself a second black district. And that's just not true. There were plenty of maps that divided as many or fewer county lines as the map that the Republicans passed. So there's no need to do anything crazy. Like you said, you just take Birmingham, some of the black belt, you take Montgomery, some of the black belt, very easy, you know, there's your map. So Republicans who are claiming this is some sort of impossible task, is just silly. Yeah. And you raise a really good point, which is that oftentimes these hypothetical maps that plaintiffs put forward in cases like these score much better on various mathematical methods of measuring compactness because Republicans usually have to go out of their way to do things like split up 
closely knit communities like the black community in Alabama. So a lot of these plaintiffs maps, certainly if you're just looking at them with the naked eye, they seem to make much more sense. Now, of course, that is by no means the only or the right way to judge maps. But really, you know, uh, Republicans have to go to great lengths for their gerrymanders and a proper VRA compliant map is going to be just simply a much more representative one. Yeah, though I do expect Republicans are not going to just pass a map that complies with the VRA. So I wouldn't be surprised if the court, the district court ends up having to step in and, and draw the map themselves or, you know, appoint a special master, which is the usual process. Yeah. And though we have these hypothetical maps from plaintiffs, we can't say for sure what the exact map will look like. Like you said, there's a lot of different ways this could go down, whether the court draws one, gives the legislature a chance to draw one, adopts one that the plaintiffs decide to submit as a proposed remedial map. But, you know, ultimately, you're almost certainly going to have the one Montgomery district and the one Birmingham district. The other part of this that goes way beyond Alabama is the fact that the VRA has lived to survive another day means that other similar cases in other states, mostly in the South, have a real chance of success. And in particular, the two at the top of the list are Louisiana and Georgia. Like I said, there are similar cases there. And in fact, in Louisiana, uh, a court last year similarly ruled that the state had failed to create a second black majority district and that it was obligated to do so, except the Supreme Court, like it did in Alabama last year, stepped in and said, no, 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 too close to the election, can't have any changes this late, and therefore allowed elections to proceed under an unconstitutional map. The circumstances in Louisiana are very similar. Louisiana Republicans took New Orleans, they took Baton Rouge, and they stuck them together in the same district. These, again, are two cities with large black populations. The plaintiffs here have proposed dividing those up and having each of those cities anchor their own district. Again, they would both have black majorities and both be likely to elect black Democrats. And it's the same thing in Georgia there. Last year, a judge also said that plaintiffs were likely to prevail on their argument that the state should have to create an additional black district in the Atlanta area. That judge, though, put his own ruling on pause because he basically knew that the Supreme Court was going to tell him, no, you can't order a new map to be put in place for 2022. But those two cases are about to pick up steam once again. There is every reason why they should follow exactly what happened in Alabama. In Georgia, by the way, the Atlanta area is home to one of the largest black populations anywhere in the country. For decades, it's been known as the black Mecca of the South. That's what Ebony Magazine called it all the way back in 1971. Atlanta already has three districts that elect black Democrats, either with black majorities or something very close to it. And you won't be surprised to learn that you can readily draw a fourth such district in the western Atlanta suburbs centered on Cobb County, again, that would elect a black Democrat in all likelihood. So I think obviously Alabama and Louisiana are two of the clearest cut cases where additional black districts need to be drawn. It's very easy. Georgia is right there as well. And that's why the litigation in these states are the ones that progress the farthest. And so I think you can see pretty clearly if this ruling you know, stays with us, the Supreme Court doesn't decide to backtrack or do anything crazy about timelines and is implemented the way that it should be, there should be three additional Democratic-leaning African-American districts across these three states, 
all of which should increase the size of the Democratic caucus after the 2024 elections. Yeah. And everyone listening to the down ballot is extremely aware that Republicans have just a five seat majority in the House. And so that was three seats across those three states. And we haven't even spoken about Texas yet. There's similar litigation pending there. We're not going to get into the weeds on that one. 10 different lawsuits, literally 10, were consolidated into one case with just dozens and dozens of claims, including the Voting Rights Act and other allegations as well. Some have been rejected by the court. Some are still alive. It's very, very complex. But taking a conservative view, it is certainly possible that the courts could order the state of Texas to draw not one, but two new VRA compliant districts, one in Dallas, one in Houston. These, unlike the other districts we've spoken about, would have Latino majorities. And I know you're doing the math, three plus two. Hey, that's five. Those are the five seats we need. Now, obviously, there's a ton of ball game left. We don't know how all these cases will play out, like you were just saying, Beard. And also, of course, as we've mentioned on the show before, there's still Ohio and North Carolina, where Republicans are set to re-gerrymander both maps. So all of the redistricting that's likely to happen ahead of 2024, it could be a wash in partisan terms. But no matter what, A, this is super important for just counteracting what we can expect to happen in North Carolina and Ohio, but also Let's not lose sight of the fact that first and foremost, this is a huge victory for the Voting Rights Act and for the cause of representation of minority communities across the country. Absolutely. Yeah. 30 years ago, in the wake of the 1990 through 1992 redistricting, that was when many of these southern states elected their first African-American representatives since Reconstruction. And for a lot of those states, it's been one district, even as the member may have changed over the past 30 years. And a lot of these states have 30 plus percent African-American populations, and they deserve congressional representation that reflects that. Well, that was quite the ride. Coming up after the break, we are going to be joined by Michael Frias and Hillary Anderson from the progressive data analytics firm Catalyst. And they are going to be talking about their fascinating data heavy report called What Happened in 2022 that is designed to bust up all the hot takes and tell us what actually happened. Stay with us. Joining us on the down ballot today are two members of the leadership team at Catalyst, a progressive data firm. Michael Frias is the CEO of Catalyst, and Hillary Anderson is the firm's director of analytics. Thank you, Michael and Hillary, both of you, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks. It's great to be here. In the wake of every big election like the one we had last year, there are always a ton of hot takes that may or may not be supported by the data. At Catalyst, though, You've published a very data intensive report trying to understand the midterms called What Happened in 2022. So I'd like to hear from you, what makes your analysis unique and worthwhile? And what would you say are the most important top lines from that report for our listeners? First and foremost, the report that we put together has now been in existence for several cycles now. Um, and I think the difference is, you're right, there are hot takes that have to fill the air and answer some why questions and what just happened. Um, and that is often left to the exit polls. And so, you know, it serves that purpose. The 
project that we have embarked on since 2018 is to really dig down and not rely on polling and exit polling to tell us what the composition of the electorate was, where support levels were, and ultimately what the turnout was. What we do is the painstaking process of waiting for precinct election results to be certified and verified. And then our team collects those, aggregates them, cleans them, and helps produce this analytic report, which is really different than polling because what we're doing is actual election results and looking at the actual vote outcome. And so that's something that's different. One of the things that's unique about Catalyst is as a data utility for the progressive community, lots of voter file vendors often drop and replace voter files. Um, what we do is go through the painstaking process of stitching it together, cycle after cycle, year after year at the statewide, congressional, and precinct level. And so what we're able to do is create a very rich longitudinal data set. And so that is what gives us the most confidence in our report when it starts to get into the composition of the electorate and you know who voted and at what levels they supported a candidate and what their turnout was. And so I think that's a unique product that we offer to the community. So that's kind of the report. You know, the top lines I think we've talked a lot about and people had a suspicion about this, which is first, there was no national election, right? Oftentimes national, these midterm elections move and you can see, you can look at the national vote and and see whether or not Republicans or Democrats performed plus or minus, you know, two or three points. And what we saw is two different stories. We saw a story where there were competitive states, which is places where we had top tier candidates and were competitively contested both on the Republican and Democratic side. And then places where we weren't actually you know, contesting those races, both on the Democratic side or the Republican side. And what became very clear is the expectation was this would be a traditional midterm. And what we ended up witnessing was something dramatically different. And it is fair to say that the Dobbs decision was an earthquake that like reshuffled the trajectory of the election um, in very dramatic ways. And so we saw these two different elections, both in competitive places, competitive states and non-competitive states. We saw the composition of electorate look a lot like 2020 and even meet and exceed 2018 historic levels of turnout and support and performance um, for key constituencies among the Democratic electorate. And then three is we also saw what I've started calling the MAGA tax, which is those candidates that were MAGA Republicans. They were election deniers. They were trying to follow or mimic in the wake of Trump. That didn't pan out for them, right? They, they weren't as good as Trump. And they also lagged behind their GOP counterparts who had pushed away um, from the MAGA extremism. And so obviously they did poorly against their GOP counterparts that were not extreme. And they did even worse against good, high quality Democratic candidates as well. So those were some of the bigger top lines. Yeah, I mean the, the the main thing that I would have that I would add on there is in particular looking at young voters, right, and how their participation this time around looks different than how it has historically looked in midterm elections. Um, as Michael was alluding to, their performance for the for the youngest cohort of voters um, in the highly competitive, highly contested states, their turnout score or their turnout was higher. Than um, even in than it was even in 2018, which is a high watermark for um, turnout. We also noticed very high levels of support among that youngest cohort of voters. So that a uh, support was in the 60% um, range, which is not something that has 
historically been the case, but something that we have observed over the past few election cycles with younger voters um, having a more consistent pattern of support for um, for Democratic candidates. So I want to dive into all of those points that you all just made. And I want to start with where you started, which was the distinction between the heavily contested races in these you know heavily contested states and sort of the rest of the country. And we saw that play out on election night, which I think surprised me and I think surprised a lot of people. We saw how poorly comparatively Democrats did in a state like New York and some other states where there wasn't really a driving race and how well they did in a state like Michigan, which had competitive you know, races up and down the ballot. So had we ever seen that before? Is there a cycle previously that had a similar situation or is that really a unique result? And then drilling down into what groups or are, are, you know, what specifically drove that distinction that made it different in those two groups of states? Yeah. So uh, to answer your question, it is unique. It's something that we noticed in this election cycle. But when we compare past presidential support to the following midterm support, this time around, it is a little bit different. When we looked at that um, transition going from the 2012 to the 2014 cycle, we saw that regardless of whether it was a competitive or not competitive state, Democrats performed about four points worse in 2014. When we looked at that difference between 16 and 18, we saw that Democrats, regardless of where, regardless of the competitive competitiveness of those districts, were performing about three points better than the than in that previous presidential um, election in 2016. However, when we look at 2022, what we find is that in places with the uh, highly competitive elections, that uh, performance was on par with what Biden did in 2020. And when we look at the places with less competitive elections, that performance was about four points worse. So it's clear that in this particular cycle, we are seeing this distinction between where those elections were um, the most competitive and where there was just not that same level of competitiveness in, in those races. Yeah. And I would add to that that this goes to the point that really underlies the midterm in particular is in an environment we knew when we were doing polling and looking at the election, we knew going in that if this was a traditional midterm and Republicans were going to be more enthusiastic, more engaged in this election, that it would be it would behave and act a lot like a traditional midterm election. I think Dobbs, the, the Dobbs decision totally reversed that. And so what we were monitoring throughout the election was, where's the enthusiasm? Is there an enthusiasm gap? And where was it moving? And I think you clearly see the movement in August, really, is when we started to notice there was a, a growing enthusiasm parity. There was growing enthusiasm parity. And so I think to, to Hillary's point, we saw that evident in the most competitive states. And in the other states where it wasn't competitive, it behaved a lot like Hillary just said, like a you know traditional midterm election. So since you mentioned Dobbs, do you think that that difference in enthusiasm among Democratic voters in the competitive states versus the less competitive states had to do with a sense that abortion rights might be more on the line in a state like Michigan, as opposed to a state like New York, where I'm from, where people generally take it for granted that Democrats are always going to be in charge. I would say that. Um, so we we typically uh, we call the report what happened because we typically try to just stay to the facts of what we've observed and do a little less commenting on why we might have observed those changes. But I think to, to Michael's point, it's uh, a seems 
very evident that the stakes were very high for um, when it came to abortion rights and when it came to um, what was happening in these various states. And from from my perspective, there's um, it's hard to deny that that played a role in, in what we saw. One of the things that I would add is, you know, we're talking about the What Happened report. And I think this data suggests, you know, all the things that we've mentioned about competitiveness, you know, the saliency of the of the race, but th- there was a there was we were also doing polling at the same time. And I think one of the things that I would mention and observe is what was really odd in our polling was we noticed that there was a tremendous amount of undecided voters um very late in the cycle. And we did significant polling in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. And when we looked at the undecided, when we looked under the hood to see who these undecideds were, it was shocking because historically, the undecideds are just kind of evenly split a- along the like political distribution. Um, but what we did see, um, I think to Hillary's point is, in these competitive places, the Republicans were undecided. You know, sometimes they were 60, 65, almost 70% of the undecided voters when we were doing, you know, the traditional ballot question at the t- at the top of the poll. And so I just think like to highlight that, I think in these places we also saw a tremendous amount of Republicans trying to figure out what they were going to do with their vote. And I think, you know, the data suggests that we had a lot of folks, you know, fr- from the Republican side either stay home or come over and support Democrats. And I think that that's where you start to see the difference, both in these competitive states versus in the non-competitive states where I don't think that that dynamic or that phenomenon was as evident. You know, I got to say, if you had told me before the election, you were seeing polls with tons of undecided Republican voters, that would have made me very nervous because I would have generally assumed that they were just eventually going to come home like they always do. I think, you know, we had Tom Jensen from PPP on, on the show last year, and he said, you know, you, you could never really trust those Republican undecideds to do the right thing in the end. And yet somehow in 2022, they did. Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of um, the abortion um, issue, um, as Michael mentioned earlier, but also just the how extreme the MAGA candidates were um, and even turning off some Republican voters. Uh, as we look at the heavily competitive places, we noticed that the MAGA candidates underperformed the, what we would consider to be the more you know traditional types of Republican candidates. And in particular, those st- really strong MAGA candidates even underperformed Trump's performance in 2020 in those same geographies. Um, and so there's something that is clearly happening where that brand of um, Republican extremism just is not connecting with voters in those areas. There's so much there in what you both just said to dive into further. And I want to talk about the MAGA tax some more. I love that term. Uh, But before we move on to that, let's talk a little bit more about abortion and Dobbs, and in particular, women voters. Now, whenever you have conversations like this, it's always very tempting to talk about large blocks of voters as a short sort of shorthand. You know, we, we say women voters, black voters, et cetera. And it's understandable that you do that when you're just having a casual conversation on a podcast. But you guys have obviously taken a deep dive, like you were saying at the top of the show, you really dug into the precinct results and tied it into your longitudinal analysis of the voter file. So I'd love to know if there are any demographic breakdowns within the broader universe of women voters that you feel are worth highlighting from your findings for 2022. It's okay with you all. I kind of want to take this in two directions, one around women registration and then kind of like also talking about changes. Absolutely. Love it. Okay. One of the big effects that we saw in our data was this noticeable spike 
and the registration of voter registration of women after the Dobbs decision came out in the summer. What is particularly of note in that is that prior to the decision, we saw um, women's registration hovering at about or around 50% of the total registrants that were you know, coming. So about 50% women, 50% men. When we have the Dobbs decision come down, we notice this spike in the percentage of women registering to vote. So now women are making up about 55% of the total registrants and new voters. A- after, after that moment, we see a decline which is to be expected. But however, that decline did not go back down to that 50% kind of hovering out 50%. It stayed still comfortably higher than 50%, around 53, um, 52% of, of registrants, even going into the, the November election. And I think that that is something that undoubtedly had um, a major impact, just get it, bringing that many new women, new women voters into the electorate. The other important thing to note is that among white non-college women, there was a four-point swing in support towards the Democratic candidates. When we look at the highly competitive geographies, we observed a four-point swing in support for Democratic candidates among white non-college educated women. Um, This is um, incredibly notable in the 2020 presidential cycle. Um, In these same geographies, the support was around 40%. Among white college-educated women, we also saw a bit of a shift. Um, That was a two-point shift in Democrats' direction. Biden in 2020 was already performing pretty strongly with white um, college-educated women with about 56% support. But even going into 2022 in this midterm year, that support went up a little bit um, to about 58%. Now, in a midterm where there was a number of unusual results, another unusual result was that Republicans finally got punished for some of their extremist positions. You mentioned the MAGA tax earlier. You know, we've seen it over the years. Republicans get crazier and crazier. It doesn't seem to matter. This year, it finally did. You know, take us through how you actually prove that in the results and, and how you were able to analyze this to compare these you know, MAGA extremist candidates versus the Republicans who didn't, you know, deny the election and other things. Yeah. So our definition of election deniers was taken from an analysis done by the Washington Post. Um, And so what we did here was we looked in those um, really competitive districts to see what was the change in support, where there were those competitive districts with a candidate with that election denier label, and to see how their um, performance compared to Trump's performance in 2020. And what we observed was that in those highly competitive places, those extreme MAGA uh, candidates performed even worse than Trump did. When we look at the performance among those who were not branded with that extremist MAGA label, those more quote unquote sane Republicans, (laughs) uh, we saw that they performed about two, those Republicans in the highly competitive places performed about 2.8% better than Trump. So um, you can see that in these highly competitive places, that Trumpian brand was was a drag on those candidates. When we look at the House National, however, so this is kind of the little bit of the bad news to that, is nationally we did see that those uh, places where there was an election denier, they actually performed a little bit better than Trump. And so, you know, it, it just goes to show that where where the races were the most competitive was really where that, that drag happened. So... Even if some election denier candidates for the House performed a little bit better than Trump, does that necessarily mean that they also would have performed better than a more mainstream Republican candidate? Because obviously we have a number of examples in hand of races that Democrats 
definitely won only because Republicans nominated a lunatic House candidate like Washington's third district. So, um, yeah, that, that that's correct. So when we look at the candidates who performed um, or the candidates who were the, the less who were not labeled the extreme MAGA candidate, those candidates performed 2.2 percent better than Trump did. So when you're looking at those less competitive places, what you're seeing is there was a slight overperformance of overperformance of about 0.7 percent. So not even a 1% overperformance for the extreme MAGA candidates in the less competitive places. But for the more mainstream candidates, their overperformance was was 2.2 points. So I'll still take that as good news then. <laughs> yeah, I still still is good news. But I mean, I it, it's always a little scary when you have candidates like that who are still, you know, still performing well, even in even in places that aren't as contested, right? And and I think the other thing that I would note on this is that, you know, these candidates were not only extreme on one issue. They were not only extreme on, um, you know, being anti-democracy. They're all those. They're also extreme on anti-abortion. And so it's hard to fully tease apart, you know, the exact reason um, around that. But we do know that they all kind of did embody this very similar MAGA um, label and brand. And I think putting it into context, what do we make of 2022 and how do we put it in context of 2024, I think is really like part of what we hope people do. And so to kind of help explain that, you can take these two gubernatorial candidates, you know, Kemp in Georgia and Mastriano in Pennsylvania. And you have somebody like Kemp who hugged Trump, then distanced himself from Trump, and then benefited, at least electorally, from being classified as a, a non-election denier, a non-MAGA candidate as as the Washington Post classification. And you kind of see that in his performance, right? He did about four points better. And then you flip it and you look at a Mastriano who couldn't hug Trump tight enough and he really paid a price. And obviously Shapiro was, you know, a, a very good candidate as well. But, you know, I think when you're looking at this Republican primary in 2023 and what it means for 2024, you're really looking at there's a choice that these Republican primary voters have. And I think, you know, from our perspective, at least what the data suggests is this MAGA tax is extreme when you get to the general election. The real question is, what do they do in this primary? And I think that's the thing that we continue to observe with great interest, as do many of us who are watching how this plays out. But we think there is clear evidence that would suggest that a non-MAGA extremist would do better in a general election than one of, you know, Trump himself or somebody who's trying to run very closely um, in his wake. So changing gears a bit, one issue that comes up constantly is this idea or fear that voters of color are leaving the Democratic Party, especially as this notion of the Democratic Party becoming more and more focused on white college educated voters takes hold. What kind of evidence did we see either for or against these claims in 2022? First of all, we don't want to be overly positive about all the developments in 2022 and that you know we we want to acknowledge that they, that we're, there really is one party and that we are a multicultural diverse and we and Democrats have a broad coalition of support the one shift that that is observable in our data is a declining a decline in support among um, black men in particular so when we look at uh, the changes in support from 2020 to 2022, Nationally, we see about a four point drop in support among uh, African-American men. Uh, so uh, it went from about 83 percent or from 87 percent for um, support for Biden in 2020 to around 83 percent in um, 2022. 
However, you know, once again, it's it's kind of a similar pattern where when you look, we where you break that down at the um, state level, there are some differences in what black support looked like. So, for example, in North Carolina, there was a higher level of support for Democratic candidates among black voters there than there was um, than Biden got in 2020. Um, and in Georgia, too, things were kind of on par, maybe a little bit um, more optimistic um, among black voters. But um, outside of those particular elections, there is somewhat of a trend around around that support, which Democrats should pay attention to. However, with all of that said, black voters still do support Democratic candidates at the highest rate of any other racial group. And that's true even with the declining um, trend line in support. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in investing in um, the black electorate and making sure that, you know, uh, all black people are, are getting you know represented, reached out to and participating. But also too to acknowledge that that differentiation in, in support and turnout is observed and the competitive versus non-competitive, even among black voters with them, you know, performing kind of on par in the more competitive places with 2020 and a little bit under in the less competitive places. And if I could add to this, to your question, right, like, it's a popular sentiment. The Republicans are growing this broad, diverse coalition that's going to reshape and remake, you know, the Republican Party and make them a force to be reckoned with. On the other side, you have this you have this other sentiment that demographics is destiny. And we've also seen evidence that that's not something that we can. So we're we're balancing between these two baselines. And then when you look at just the composition of the electorate for who voted for Democrats, who voted for Republicans, it is very clear um, that the Republicans have a long way to go to actually prove and show that they actually have this broad coalition of support. So, you know, in our report, we break down the coalition, you know, 33% of the electorate that voted for Democrats were white non-college, 33% were white college, 18% among black voters, 10% among Latinos, and 5% among AAPI voters. And then when you look at the Republicans, it's 55% white non-college, and then it's 31% white college. And then to, to, to piggyback off of what Hillary said, it's 2% 2 black voters, and then 6% among Latinos and 3% among AAP, AAPI. And so I think when, when we're looking at this and observing it, the thing that I think we want to be centered on is we do have that actual multiracial, multicultural, socioeconomic like support and coalition, but we can't take it for granted. To Hillary's point, we can say that among about black voters. We certainly need to say that among Latino voters and also AAPI voters as well. And so I think when we think about how we move forward as a party into 2024, we have a much stronger diverse foundation than the Republicans do heading into the 2024 election. However, just because we did well in 2022 doesn't mean it's just automatic. And I think that's the message that really has started to resonate and echo from cycle to cycle when we talk to groups on the ground and you know some of our clients that are doing the hard work in and out of election cycles is pay attention, invest early, stay committed, and stay through the, stay through the election and then past the election. And that we're starting to see the benefit of that. So you mentioned that Georgia and North Carolina were two examples where Black voters did as well or better in 2022 for Democrats than they did for Biden in 2020. And of course, those were two states where Democrats nominated African-American candidates for Senate, and of course, in Georgia, also for governor. This may not be sort of something you've studied in the report or have hard data on, but it certainly seems like having African-American candidates 
lead the ticket logically leads to, you know, higher turnout, more support for Democrats when that happens. And it's certainly something for Democrats to think about moving forward. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. It's something that um, Democrats should be mindful of. Um, as we move into future um, elections. It's not anything that we can definitively show in our report, right? But it, it like logic would kind of lead you to, to think that that um, would be the case. And I think it's always also always great when the Democratic Party can have candidates that are as diverse as the coalition that Michael was just mentioning. Um, we, we want to not just have a, um, a, a set of voters who is reflective of the true diversity of the, of the nation, but also a set of candidates who, who reflect that diversity as well. Um, and so hopefully, um, as we kind of you have build up more of this evidence, we'll be able to, to see that more clearly over time. Now, obviously, Catalyst spent months working on this report, um, a lot of great information there, but we're already needing to look to the next thing, to the next election, the next avenue. So what is Catalyst going to be working on for the next few months and leading up to 2024 that might be of interest? Um, quite a few things. First and foremost, Catalyst is doubling down and investing in demystifying data and analytics, right? For, for too long and too often, you know, the folks with the numbers, you know, keep it secret and keep it hard to understand. And I think um, Hillary's done a great job um, leading an effort with Dr. Janae Cody and others to have 101 lessons and having office hours where folks on the ground, the users of our data that are working in all these communities across the country have an opportunity to ask practitioners, and experts, hey, what do I make of a vote propensity model? What do I make of the race and ethnicity modeling that's available on your file? How do I think about it in terms of the various, I want to do community building, I want to do electoral outreach, I want to identify a representative universe that I can go and talk to. And so I think that we're going to continue to do more of that. Two is, you know, we're going to continue to double down on, you know, our, our team of experts on polling um, are going to continue to kind of take a look at how we can make more transparent and advise folks on what are the best practices in polling and methodology so that we can get better, more accurate results. Um, I think, you know, there's always a lot of contention about whether should we, are we moving more to polling or is it analytics? You know, what's the, what's the right equation? And so, you know, our team will continue to invest in that. And then, you know, lastly, I think we're interested in being a utility um, for the entire community. And so, you know, I think you can anticipate bigger efforts like, you know, we did a joint cell phone acquisition that provided all the cell phones we could we could purchase um, to the community, you know, in partnership with our, 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 our friendly competitors, Target Smart, with the support of some of the biggest actors in our space. And I think I'm really excited about our progressive ecosystem maturing and developing and figuring out ways that we can partner and collaborate not for our own individual best interest, but fundamentally what we realized post-2016, and it certainly became very stark and clear in 2020, is we're all in this together. And so there are times when we are competitive, but there are times when what is going on in this country matters more, and we should be doing everything we can to build as many partnerships and to do as much as we can to benefit the entire progressive ecosystem. We've been talking with Michael Frias and Hillary Anderson of the progressive data firm Catalyst. 
Michael and Hillary, where can folks find out more about your work? Where can they find the What Happened in 2022 report that we have been talking about on this show? And where can they follow you on social media? Folks can find our report on our website, um, catalyst.us slash what happened 2022. And folks can also find us on Twitter with the handle at Catalyst underscore US. And that's Catalyst with an I, obviously, because you guys are all about the voter list. Michael and Hillary, thank you so much for joining us on the down ballot this week. This was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Michael Frias and Hillary Anderson for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Walter Einenkel and editor Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode. (laughs) 